How about we end, end the sermon series with a war story? Um, I want to tell you about a day. It's, it was March 23rd, 2003. I was flying, I was the wingman in a two-ship. Now that means that uh, I'm flying in one airplane and my flight lead, the head of the flight, is flying in another. So there's two airplanes and we're flying together and we're over the town, a town in Iraq called Anazaria. This is the very beginning of the invasion. The invasion essentially started 19 March. So this is the 23rd of March. We're over on Nazaria. And this town on this day experienced some of the most significant resistance of the entire invasion. In fact, there is an entire book written about this town on this day called Ambush Alley. You may remember there were a series of uh, army personnel, I think seven. One, I think she had the last name Flynn. She was taken captive in the war. If you were a, a newsmonger back then, you might remember that she was captured. She was captured on this day in this town. It was, it was chaos. And uh, on this particular day, I was above the chaos, listening to it, trying to figure out how to be some useful contribution to the war. That, that's the airplane, by the way, in case you haven't seen it. Um, and you can see it's a two-ship, so back there it w- would be the wingman. And so we're there, and we're working with the Marines, trying to kind of make sense of everything that's going on, and the radios are going crazy. If, if I thought about bringing in actual radio comm. This mission was so chaotic, even I can hardly follow what's happening. I mean, you had a medevac helicopter that was getting shot at. You had a tank stuck in the mud. You had Marines getting shelled. And at the very time we're talking with these Marines, they came under heavy enemy mortar fire. And so you can actually hear rounds going off behind them. They're yelling. There's things happening. And amidst all this, when the enemy mortar fire started coming on them, kind of that gave us clarity as to at least now we know what we're going to do. We're going to take care of this enemy mortar fire. Well, it's easier said than done because uh, the Marines, they said to us, well, they're on the radio, they're in the tree line. But um, when you're on the ground, you see a tree line. When you're in the air, you see 35 tree lines because you're in the air. So they were unable to give us clarity. They couldn't give us coordinates because of the chaos. And so because of daylight, the sun was setting, all of the worst-case scenario that you, you would hope not to see, they were happening. The radios were bad. The sun was setting. Too many tree lines. And we ended up going old school, as we call it. Um, what I ended up doing is... Uh, you know, the, the Marines could give us the azimuth, the bearing from their position to the tree line. It was down this long east-west road. And so what I did is I flew, I came down out of altitude to about 500 feet off the ground, and I flew over their heads on the azimuth that they said was the enemy position. So I just kind of flew at the enemy, and they counted down for me. So they went five, four, three, two, one, mark. That's the enemy. And I looked out my wing, and there's a tree line sitting right off my left wing. And it was like, okay, now I found it. What I didn't see, and what none of us saw, that there was an anti-aircraft artillery battery just off the right side of my wing. And so I come, I break up, and my airplane is fast if it's going straight down. Otherwise, it's never fast. So I was going from about 395 to about 180 in about six seconds. It's just amazing how the airplane loses airspeed. And as I point my nose up, and I'm, I'm uh, coming off... The, uh, the target area, I hear my flight lead say this. Break right flares, you're getting shot at. Now, 
Uh, I'll translate that. It means break right, you're getting shot at. Uh, now, uh, combat is uh, combat tests you. Uh, life tests you, but combat tests you. It tests you in a lot of ways. I wish I was man enough to tell you that combat didn't test my manhood, but it does. There's that, there's that part, I think, in most soldiers. If you're trying to figure a way to pray for soldiers, there's a way to do it. There's this part that you, in the back of your mind before you go into combat that wonders, will I do what I'm supposed to do when I'm supposed to do it? Up until combat, it's theoretical. You don't know if you're man enough or, or woman enough or person enough, whatever it is, it sits back there. When it comes time, when it comes time to go 500 feet over an enemy position, will I do that? It's a test. It tests tactics. Right? We spend all the time in peace trying to imagine the next war and train to it. So it tests what I think our tactical idea of combat should be. It tests our training towards those tactics. So not only do we have to have tactics, but we have to have a set of, we have to train to them. Do we effectively train to do the things we think we need to do in an effective way? It tests a squadron, not only the esprit de corps of a squadron, which is absolutely essential in combat, but this attitude of discipline, this added this culture in a squadron of when things get rough or hard or long, that, that our judgment and our discipline stay sharp. And it certainly, and maybe most acutely, tests the relationship of two flight, two flight members. In this kind of scenario, you have to trust the person in the other jet. Well, I trust this guy. So he says to me, break right flares, you're getting shot at. Apparently I was getting shot at a lot. I never saw any of it, to be honest with you. I saw it in my tape when I got back home. I'm watching my HUD film and I see three tracer rounds pass right in front of my nose. I never saw any of it. But he's watching it, and he's telling me what to do. Break, flares, come this way, come that way. And then I hear over the radio him squeal to the Marines, confirm there's no friendly units north of the east-west road. The Marines didn't know what was going on. They couldn't even see the AAA happening. They said, what? I remember it, because time had slowed down so much. It was, I remember the Marines going, what? And I'm thinking, what do you mean, what? Answer the question. And he said, confirm there are no friendly units north of the east-west road. And they kind of stuttered over themselves, and they went, yeah, it's affirmative. The no friendlies north of the road. And, and he said, one's in from the northeast on the AAA side. And he rolled in, and about 300 rounds later, the AAA stopped shooting forever. Um, and then we went on our merry way and did our business. Who was tested there? This is a test. Who was tested? As I've gotten older, my answer has changed on this very day. I think about this very day more. I actually think about it more now than I did the day of. My mind went to the next mission for the next day. But the older I get, the more I feel my mortality, the more convinced I am that my life was saved on this day. Um, and my answer of who was tested starts to change. And this is a question. This is an important question. This is the question of our sermon this morning that I want us to ask. This question of who's being tested. Because we're going to observe a scenario in which, in which there's somebody being tested. I just want to know who it is. So if you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 22. 
We'll spend our final Sunday with Abraham, at least for some time. We'll be back. He's too good to leave for good, isn't he? Genesis 22. And we're going to read the first two verses thank you, of Genesis 22. In this endeavor to determine who's being tested. Now, I know your NIV Bible answers the question, or they try to, in big, bold letters. But we'll see if they're right. 22, verse 1. Some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now the scripture here, the narrative reads, sometime later, and I think it's worth thinking about that for a second, sometime later, it has been, the sometime later is essentially sometime later after having Isaac. That's kind of the last big story that that happened, Isaac, Abimelech, that was preached on last Sunday, sometime later from that, and I think this sometime later is like a decade-ish. I think this because Isaac at this point seems to be old enough in the narrative to do chores. He seems chore-worthy. He seems somewhat usable. And so I've had to ask, how old is that? <laughs> and uh, we are entering the, we're entering the somewhat to mostly usable phase of our life between that 8 to 12 range is where, is where uh, you can throw a load of wood on a kid's back and say, carry it. And that's kind of what happens in this narrative. But the, the Hebrew is clear that he's not an adult. He's not a young adult. There's a different word. So he's a lad. Think of him as a lad, but he's not a wee lad. He's a semi-usable lad, which means that sometime later has been about 10 years. That's how, how I kind of get a sense of What's going on? But it's been a while, and it's been a while that Abraham has been enjoying the promises of God. So most of the life of Abraham we've read, he's been waiting for the fulfillment of the promises of God. Now he's enjoying them. Do you see this? He's had, he has Isaac now. His son has been given to him. The son of promise that has been promised to him for three decades he waits, and now he has Isaac. And he's living with him. Loving him growing with him, having experiences. That's what's happening. He's enjoying the promises and blessings of God. He has a wife who, who has been vindicated and glorified by the Lord. That is so significant. Never in my studies of Genesis have I felt that as keenly as I have this past months of the, the, the singular nature of God redeeming Sarah out of her barrenness and how that must have just reshaped the household. He's rich. He's wealthy. All the people around Abraham respect, fear, and honor him. They recognize that Abraham's God is a powerful God. This is what Abraham has been living in for 10 years. It's like us. Your 401Ks matured nicely. You're staring at retirement. The house is paid off. It's that time of life. Things are good. Leisure is on the horizon. And then God shows up. 
And he says, verse 2, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, the son whom you love, and sacrifice him on the mountains of Moriah. It's a troublesome verse 2. It's a test. Certainly this is a test. We know it's a test because Genesis 22 verse 1 says it's a test. But we need to know Abraham doesn't know this is a test. And this is the important thing. We know it because the Bible says it. But for people, you don't know when you're getting tested. It just shows up. God doesn't preface the test with some long beep and then a public service announcement. The test of your faith, it comes. Abraham doesn't have Genesis 22, verse 1. His life starts in Genesis 22, verse 2, with Abraham. Take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and go sacrifice him there. And that's significant. Now, verse 2 can be hard. Some people get stuck in this story. They have a hard time understanding God, and I think it's because of verse 2. This is the big snare. And so this would be my advice because uh, I know I have like three Sundays worth of information to share. This is my third Sunday. But I only got one Sunday to share it in. So we can't spend too much time here. So this would be my advice to you is don't allow yourself to get ensnared by one verse. If one verse is bothering you, back off. Listen to the whole story. And then make your judgment about God. Rarely does God allow us or intend for us to make a judgment on him on one verse. Usually, he says, listen to the story. And besides, this is the test. God hasn't done anything yet. So if verse 2 bothers you, he hasn't done anything. He just said something very hard to Abraham. And I admit it's hard. I mean, even to say such a thing is maybe how it's troubling or difficult to understand. And, and I think what's difficult to understand about it is that these words are unlike the words we expect from God, right? Because we think we know God. We don't expect these kinds of words to come out of our God. Yahweh doesn't talk this way. This is how the other gods of the land talk. Which you should realize is this, God's not concocting some, some rancid, brutal idea He's not brainstorming, what's the craziest, cruelest thing I can do? His voice is mimicking the practices which are typical from the land around. This is, this is the kind of pantheon of idolatry that Abraham was called out of 30 years ago. In the back of Abraham's mind, there must have been some gear spinning going, it's back. I thought, I thought this was over. I thought he was different. I wonder, I wonder if the gears were whining about that. Because this is the world that Abraham came from. This is the world he was called from, that he left. It's, it's this, this world of, of sacrifice has been around in the ancient Near East long before Abraham, and it existed well into a thousand years after Abraham. It's here. But somehow God prefaces his, his, his revelation of himself in this chapter with these words, these words that should come out of some other God's mouth. Which means in answering this question, who's being tested? That's the question of the day. We should note 
that God's request of Abraham seems to place God's own personhood in the balance. I mean, in this big test, I'm forced to, to, I'm forced to admit that if Abraham does everything right, goes all the way to the sacrifice of Isaac, there's still a problem. There's a really big problem, in fact. There's a problem in my soul with what do I think of God. I mean, if, if this test is about Abraham, I can't help but notice that God has placed his own personhood under suspicion. Is he the kind of God who would do this? Is he really the God he says he is? Well, let's see. Let's read verses 3 to 6. Now, I'm going to slow the reading down a little bit. The mood and tenor of the Hebrew really slows down this narrative. It slows it down in its language. It slows it down also in, in just the steps. Just listen. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and he saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut the wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. Has anyone noticed the silent mood of that passage? How long were they walking? Three days? Maybe three days? If God told you to go sacrifice your son, do you think maybe over three days you might have a conversation with the Lord? The, to me, the silence is deafening. Why is there not a conversation? I mean, the whole mood of the scripture, the Hebrews certainly want you to feel the silence, but the whole mood of the scripture ha- just gives you this real sense of silence. The idea of Abraham waking up early in the morning, if you had to sacrifice your son, do you think you'd sleep the night before? I know I'd get up early. I'm an early guy anyway, but I know I'd get up early. I wouldn't want my wife to wake up. I'd want to be gone before she got up. Don't you think he's asking these questions? What do you think Sarah would say? I can even feel the coolness, waking up in the cool. You know how the early morning when it's dark, it's quiet. It's dark quiet. I can see my breath and feel the dew And as I saddle the donkey, all of this is so lonely. It's so lonely and it's so cold and it's so silent. And there's days that are passing where he's carrying his son to the mountain and he doesn't speak. Doesn't speak to the Lord. And I'm troubled. We should, I'm troubled by that. There's, there's, there's options. It would be one thing if Abraham were some evil or disconnected father. Then I would understand why he doesn't talk. Right? If you didn't care about his son, take your son, the son you don't love, the son who showed up 
at the wrong time, the inconvenient son, the son who's in the way, take him and make him an offering. That might be one thing. That I might see God finding that, or Abraham reconciling, well, this, this will work out for me in the end. But that's not Isaac. Abraham waited years for Isaac. He's a hundred years old when Isaac shows up. He's a son of promise. Take your son, your only son Isaac, the son whom you love, God said. He's not disconnected. He loves his son. So that can't be it. I think it would be also be one thing if Abraham were not a man of many words. Or if the Bible never recorded Abraham. You know, Noah hardly ever has words. Now, we know he talked, but the Bible doesn't think he ever said anything important. That's not the case with Abraham. Abraham says things that are important just a few chapters earlier. What do we see? We see Abraham not speaking to God, but pushing on God about Sodom and Gomorrah. He has this massive conversation about a wicked city of judgment, and it's recorded for us in Scripture. What if there were 50 righteous? What if there were 45, 40, 30, 20? What if there were just 10 righteous people? That whole dialogue of of Abraham's is given to us just a few chapters earlier. Abraham is not short on words. Abraham's not scared to talk to the Lord. Abraham is not a silent character. So why is he so quiet? Here's another thing. The ideas, the words of God are conflicting. This is what's troublesome. The words of God are conflicting. On the one hand, God has said, Isaac is the son of promise. Isaac is the child through whom the nations of the world will be blessed. Isaac is the one upon which I'm building the generations of Abraham. Isaac is your child, not Ishmael. Isaac. Isaac's going to live. He's going to have children. That's Isaac. That's on the one side. On the other hand, is take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him to me. That is conflicting. So why the silence? Why this unquestioning obedience? Why not the petitions that we found on the cliffs looking down at the cities of the plain? I've become convinced that it's because Abraham has run out of words with God. I'm convinced it's because Abraham has lived with God for so long and that he has seen this invisible God time and time and time again do impossible things in his life that he's done asking questions. That he's walked with the Lord for so long now that when God finally says something, Abraham is finally at the place in his life where he just says, if God says it, I'm going to do it. That these questions of faith that are in our soul about, but what if this? But how about that? But these conflicts, what's going on? In Abraham's soul, you know what he's saying? That's God's problem. God said it. I'm going to obey That's the place that Abraham is. He's in a place where he's just run out of words. He can't even imagine now objecting to the Lord, this Lord who's given him everything. The Lord gave him a son when that was not possible. By this time in Abraham's life, he's heard... These names, he's heard that he has a God who sees. He heard, has heard he has a God who provides. He's heard he is a God of laughter, a God of victory, the Lord Almighty. Again and again, God has given him names of himself. 
to Abraham. And by this point, Abraham doesn't need to ask any more names. It's just God. To me, this moment, these silent three days to the mountain, are the climax of Abraham's life. To me, he is parading his faith in front of us. It's awesome. This silent faith of Abraham, to me, stands as a model. It humbles me to watch him do this. And I think we miss it. I think we always miss it. I think this is so easy to miss. And you know why? Because when we read the story, we pull it up out of Genesis like it's its own little entity. So it's unconnected to Abraham before or after. We just kind of say today in Sunday school class, we're going to talk about the sacrifice of Isaac. We take this story, we read it, and when we read it, we haven't been walking with Abraham for, for all of Scripture. And so what do we deal with? What is our natural concern at this point in the story? Isaac. We, our eyeballs and our ears and our attention are focused on this boy. And we miss this silent sojourn. We miss this quiet, resolved, God will handle it, faith of Abraham. I have had to repent from missing this. Hebrews 11 doesn't miss it. These conflicting plans, the fact that Abraham just silently pushes through in obedience, that has to make me ask, who's being tested here? So when God gives us a word, or, or when he calls us to do things that are conflicting, and when through faith, he calls us to have the faith just to keep going, to keep going down this path, that puts the burden of the problem in his lap. Who's being tested here? This situation, this journey to Moriah, I think this is a lesson of what our first love in our life is. I think the silent obedience to God comes when our affections, when our reverence, when our fear, when our respect, when our love, when our obedience are attributed not to the gift, but to the giver of the gift. And this is the difference. That Abraham, by this point in his life, is absorbed in the gift giver and not the gift. That's his life, is to be obedient to the one who gives, not to the gift that was given. And this is the question. This, is, this preaches right into who we are. What is your first love? Where are your affections fixed? Are they fixed on the gift, on what God's given you, on your health, or your family, or your profit, or, or your beauty, or your intelligence, or your success? Is that where it's fixed? Or is it fixed on the person who's given these things? Where is your allegiance? And you can tell. You can tell in your life and the life of others, because if God removes one of them, or if he asks for one of his gifts back, and you start saying, why? You know. You know. There's times when we look out in life and we see, we see Christians who are whying God to death. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Well, why would you do that? 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 Why this? Why that? That is telltale evidence that we worship our gifts 
and we don't worship the giver? Where are your affections? Could you imagine having a gift as great as a son at a hundred years old? In an ancient family with hopeless promises. Can you imagine that? And God says, give it back. We receive health and life from God, but these are gifts from the giver. They don't belong to us. We receive his provision. We receive his means. We receive money. These are gifts. Gifts from his abundance. We receive friendship from the giver. We receive love from the giver. We receive good memories from God. They belong to him. What has your affection? God or his gifts? Let's keep reading. Verses 7 to 10. And I'll start just before verse 7. As the two of them went on together... Isaac spoke up and he said to his father, Abraham, he said, Dad? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. There's a place, I think, in each one of us when we reconcile the story as we try to figure out what is Abraham thinking, I think there's a place where in our minds we go, well, maybe Abraham's doing what he's doing because he knows God won't really do it. Like maybe the root of Abraham's faith is the faith that God's balking. That God won't, God won't do what God's asking. He won't allow that to happen. That ends at the binding of Isaac. At the binding of Isaac, this story becomes real. Let me ask you this. If you took your child, your only child, the child that you love, and you took him to a mountain to sacrifice him to God, how long would you wait before you bound him? I would wait to the last possible second. I'd keep him in the dark as long as I could. Why would you bind him anyway? I mean, think about this. Abraham is a father. He's a dad. You know what he's thinking? He's thinking, I don't want him wiggling around. I want it to be quick. It's at the binding. It's at the binding in the story that you know this is real. That Abraham, you know, he, he's past maybe God's balking. At the binding of of his son, Abraham knows this is going to happen. In fact, the Hebrew, 
the Hebrew culture, the ancient Hebrew culture in biblical times, their name for this entire chapter was not the testing of Abraham. That's so Western. Their naming for the story was Akaba, which is the binding. Which, ever since I've read it, has just been wrecking me. Because they see, they see the substance of realness and faith shows up at the binding of the son Isaac. That our faith is fake or theoretical or untested until that very moment that God could take, that Abraham could take his son Isaac up the hill thinking, ah, God will stop it, but he doesn't. I, Abraham could put the wood on his son's shoulders and say, he'll carry it up, we'll dress it up, God will take care of it, and he doesn't. This is happening because Abraham has faith and is committed to actually doing what God has said. It's at the binding. It's at the binding that life gets real. And I feel that there's lives, there's lives in the church. I, my life has not yet been bound. I have to confess. I sit here as a third party watching families in my church at a place of binding. I mourn on the outside because I see families who have been brought to such a place of torment or affliction where they have nothing left but faith in God. Life is so real for them. It's in living color for them. They're not asking questions. They're just living. But I think it's there that you discover God for real. It's there that God knows that you know that he's God. It's there that it goes, their faith goes from your head into your soul. And it's here that it's at the binding of Isaac. To me, that the test is proven that, that this son, this, 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 that God, Abraham will in fact, be faithful. Verses 11 to 14. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by his horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Who's being tested in this story? I mean, doubtless, doubtless Abraham is being tested. I can't deny that Abraham is being tested. I mean, it's, it's, it's here. But there's something that shows up in Abraham's test, and it's this, that Abraham is being tested in a way that me, that's causing him to rely on God's all-sufficiency for the problem. Do you see this? This, to me, is, is a big idea. That Abraham, in being called to be faithful, the test to Abraham is to be faithful. Abraham, is your faith sufficient, is the question. That's his test. But the real test is, Abraham, is your faith sufficient in my all-sufficiency? That's the test. Is when God tells us to trust, now who has to do the work? God does. Every single test of faith, of our faith, is a test of God's all-sufficiency. When Peter steps out the boat, 
That's a test of Peter's faith. But who holds Peter up? That is a test of God. That, has to, that is a manifestation of God's all-sufficiency. Every one of your tests of faith in life is ultimately a test of God's all-sufficiency. What God's saying is, is, is your faith sufficient in my all-sufficiency? That's the test. But God always does the work. That's why it has to get real here in this moment to the binding of Isaac because he has to bring us to a place where we go, there is no possible way that the the truth of God can be reconciled unless he shows up right now and does the work, which is what he does. When the tempter meets Jesus in the desert and says, you look hungry, how about you tell these stones to be turned into loaves of bread? What does Christ say? He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the living God. Who's being tested there? Jesus, all Jesus is saying is, is I have sufficient faith in an all-sufficient God who will sustain me. God is always on test. In Malachi, the best example of this, the easiest example, is why don't you tithe, God says. He says, in fact, Test me on this. The whole exercise of tithing is this. Do you have sufficient faith in God's all-sufficient power in your life? And God says, test me. Because every test of faith of your faith is a test of God's all-sufficiency. And here, God provides. I imagine some of you are wondering, why didn't I preach about Christmas? I got two weeks to think about it. I think I just did. We just read a story about faithful obedience and reliance to God to keep his promises. Our faith is forced to reconcile two conflicting ideas that place us in a hopeless gap. On the one hand, we have this conflicting idea that we are all sinners that we're hopeless, that there's nothing that you or I can do to attain righteousness before a holy God, that we are diabolical in our souls when presented before his pureness. That's true. I know it to be true. I know it to be true because I live near Philadelphia, not because I know God. I know it to be true because I'm living. And then we're met with this conflicting idea, which is God wants to draw us close to him, and he wants us to be with him as co as co-heirs with Christ. Those are conflicting ideas. How can I be unrighteous and yet be before the Lord? Because God will provide the lamb. Right? That's the advent of Christ. The advent of Christ is when you finally have faith, sufficient faith in God's all-sufficiency to bring you to him, that's when Christ shows up. Jesus Christ was born as a ram into the thicket. He is our gift and he is our giver. Amen.